I believe that I'm about to preach the most important message I've ever preached to you. Now, I know I could have said that last time and, and meant it. But this morning, that thought has been on my heart a lot. That this message, which is one that, well, I'll explain a little more in a moment, but I wasn't planning or prepared to preach this morning. But this is clearly one of those redirections of the Lord. And I'm thankful for that. I always want what God wants us to have. There's nothing more important that we'll do this week than what we're doing right now. Luke chapter 14 this morning. If you will look there with me, Luke chapter 14. This morning, uh, I, I have to come down to the thing that the Lord would have me to speak about. I'll tell you this, the thing for the pastor is not having something to preach or teach. That's never a problem. But it's to know with certainty what he is to preach or teach at any given meeting when the people of God have come together. And you might think that my treasury is filled with truths gleaned from what we saw and what we heard in Israel. But I tell you, it has less to do with that and more to do with the opportunity I had just to be with the Lord every day and to be in His Word and in prayer and yet not have a service to teach in, not have a radio broadcast to preach, not have daily devotionals to write, Yes, every one of those that went out were prepared ahead of time. And when you, are, when you are able to take a time like that to just receive, 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 and, and no place really to give. I mean, there was counseling to, to be done during the week, but I tell you, you just fill up, and I'm filled up this morning. And, uh, and while I missed being here, I have enjoyed and been grateful for that experience to have the tanks filled with truth uh, during all of that. But I had thought I had the message for this morning a week ago, last Saturday morning. I believe the Lord had given me the message for today. And I hope to soon be teaching and bringing a message on how to be a friend of God. I carried that with me through the week last week. But this morning I knew the Lord had been leading me to this passage in Luke 14 over the last 24 hours. I had read this twice. I read it yesterday morning. And then again, I read it this morning, and it was sort of, if, if maybe this makes sense, but I didn't plan to do that. It was sort of unintentional. And I would have to explain the way I've been doing my Bible reading for that to make sense. But um, basically, from using two different Bibles that I had, one yesterday morning I was reading out of, and the other one sits on the kitchen table I used this morning. And I started, without planning, I started reading the passage again, and I, I thought to myself, oh, I just read this yesterday. I should go forward, but I couldn't. I couldn't leave it, and I had to stay with it. And I also, in the course of God leading me, had listened to a teaching by Dallas Willard yesterday afternoon in which he was speaking about the importance of discipleship, of making disciples and not making Christians. What kind of thought? The importance of making disciples and not making Christians. And in this teaching, which was entitled Life in the Spirit, he said this, Being a disciple of Jesus is how we enter into the life of the kingdom, the life of love animated and directed by the Holy Spirit wherever we are. Obedience to Christ and the presence of the Spirit is something we learn as disciples. And how does a disciple differ from a Christian? Because the barrier to the spread of the kingdom is primarily Christians who are not disciples. 
See, we have had for quite a number of years, and in some respects even centuries, people who were called into being Christians without being disciples. And what is the difference in being a Christian and being a disciple? When Jesus sent his people out, he said to them, as you go, make disciples. He didn't say make Christians. He actually didn't say plant churches. Churches will be the natural outcome of making disciples. But if you drop the disciple part away, you are apt to wind up making churches and Christians who aren't disciples. What wisdom. Now, I wish I had said that. And maybe when I'm 70, 65, 70 years old, I'll be able to say things that well. But when I heard that yesterday, it caught my attention too. I had to stop what I was doing and I had to write it down. Replay it and listen and write it out word for word what he said. And then this morning I came back to Luke 14. And I tried to stay with how to become or how to be a friend of God, which is a wonderful message. But I, I sensed the Lord saying, that we need to hear about the cost of true discipleship. The cost of true discipleship. Now, I haven't read the text because I want to read it as we go along. But that is what is being taught by Jesus here in Luke chapter 14. And this seized me. It didn't just get my attention, it seized my attention. It is a truth which helps unlock so much in our day that we might have... Churches full of Christians, but not disciples. You see, we have a nation full of Christians, don't we? If you doubt that, you can do like I did. I consulted multiple reports, the Pew Research, and all these different ones that had, that had surveyed Americans. And on average, and you look at all these surveys from 2017 to 2021, and on average, 70% of the American people say they are Christians. I, I really, if you understand anything that I'm getting at, before I've even read Jesus' words, you will, you will have to be taken aback by that number to say something doesn't add up. 70% of Americans say they are Christians. What does that mean? We like to call ourselves a Christian nation, and yet... We are very short on disciples, which would explain a lot, wouldn't it? Dallas Willard said it well. Disciples are those who have been so ravished with Christ that others want to be like them. And I think that opened up two problems in my mind. You see, the general population has no interest in Christians. It's funny when a nation, 70% say they are Christians, but they really have no interest in the practicing Christians. They actually scoff at them, consider them annoyances. As I've said before, when's the last time someone stopped you and asked you of the hope that, that is within you? I dare say it's been a long time, if not a lifetime. Why is that? We have a nation full of Christians and few disciples. Even in the church, and this is the other problem that that statement by Willard raised in my heart, even in the church, we have failed to recognize true discipleship. You see, in the churches, Christianity is popular. 
We may want to be with other Christians. We like that. We, we actually like other Christians in the church. But true discipleship, when we see it or hear it or we get around it, seems very weird, kind of strange. Yeah, I like them, but I, I don't really think I'd want to hang out with them. I'm good with Christians, but when somebody comes along who really seems to only be interested in walking with Jesus, they're classified as strange. So that leads us to the question, what is true discipleship? What is true discipleship? What happened to true discipleship in the church, and how do we get it back? And it was in reading this passage again this morning that I was seized by the truth that Jesus preaches here, a truth, I believe, that has been glossed over and neglected in modern times, and we must go into this and hear what Jesus is saying. And he ends the whole thing in verse 35... With this statement, this sentence, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. I want to follow the introductory story here that leads us to Jesus' teaching on true discipleship. So let us look at verse number 15. Right here, Jesus is seated. Uh, he's having dinner with a group of people, and he's been talking about when you go and you're invited to a dinner, how you're not to take the chief seat, but in humility sit at the lowest place so that you won't be humiliated when you sit at the chief seat and the host comes and says, um, excuse me, there's someone more important than you here. Please step back. I, I, I think Jesus put that passage in there for Baptist preachers. But in verse 15, we'll pick up the reading. And when one of them, because Jesus is talking about, uh, he, he talks about the, the banquet or the dinner that we will have in the kingdom in heaven. And in verse 15, and when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, if you'd have been sitting next to that man at the table, you'd have said, Amen, brother. That's right, brother. Amen. Because perhaps... We're so comfortable with Christianity, we would not discern what Jesus discerned, which is the fallacy of this man's heart. Because Jesus immediately says to him in verse 16, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servants at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them, and I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out unto the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And this passage, verse 15 through 24, is the introduction, this parable of this 
Supper is the introduction to the teaching Jesus is going to give us on what true discipleship is. And I want you to notice that first of all, in verse 15, you see the shallow excitement at the idea of the kingdom of God. The shallow excitement at the idea of the kingdom of God. Much of what we have today could be described as shallow excitement at the ideas we have about God and His kingdom and what it means to be a Christian. How do I know that? I know that because of the Scripture. I couldn't give you my word on that, but I can tell you that my heart can see the truth that Jesus is giving us here. There are many like this man in verse 15. They're excited, they're interested in the prospect of eternal life and in the rewards and in the benefits of the kingdom of God. This is very much akin to the parable of the sower, how Jesus points out that there is good seed which falls on the stony ground. And it springs up quickly, but it has no root, and so as soon as the sun rises on it, it withers away and it dies. And then there is good seed that falls into the thorny ground, where the pleasures and the cares and the treasures of this world choke it out. And it has no long-lasting true life. It produces no fruit. This is the man, verse 15. That's one of those men right there who has heard the word and the seed which is good has fell upon his heart, but he is springing up quickly with this excitement. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I would like to be in on that. Many people enjoy the energy and the ideas and the atmosphere of church and Christianity, but their excitement and interest is only so deep. It's not rooted in true discipleship. And we see Jesus calls this out in the next verses. Because He speaks of the limit of the Christian commitment. We're very fond of that word commitment, aren't we? In our Christian circles. Just, just be committed. Just commit your life to Jesus. But Jesus calls out the limits of the Christian commitment in verse 16 through 20. He tells the story of giving the supper and, and bidding all of these to come. All these that are very capable... They receive an invitation, and why would they not want to come? You see, Jesus knows that most will lose that excitement as soon as there is an invitation to actually let go of this world and enter the kingdom life. He knows. His discernment is unmatched. He knows our hearts. Even then, he could discern the, hearts of this, the heart of this man, but today, for sure, he knows and discerns the hearts of everyone. You see, it's fine to come to church and to listen to the preaching and to enjoy the singing and to be part of the Christian life. But is that truly following Jesus? Is that what being a disciple is? This is a question that we can't ignore and we need to answer in our hearts. This question, am I a true follower of Jesus or am I simply a Christian? Now I can tell you that the name Christian and 
The term Christianity and the religion Christianity is something that developed years after Jesus and the apostles were walking this earth. They never called themselves Christians. They called themselves followers. Christianity has become a religion like all other religions. Easily followed and observed if you do what you're told to do and obey the rules. But it gives no life. Jesus lays out the common blocks, the excuses which are given to true discipleship. And these aren't people on the outside. These aren't the people that don't come to church. These aren't the people that don't profess to be believers. These aren't those folks. These are the people inside the church. These are the Christians, if you will, who are bidden not to some shallow excitement about their ideas of God, but they are bidden into a real life in Christ where they walk with Jesus every day and they begin to know Him intimately and their lives are transformed and they're becoming new creatures in Christ. Those people are bidden and Jesus calls out their excuses. They began with one consent to make excuse. Let me make a point about that. When you are in a circle of people who offer each other permission to make excuses, it becomes very easy to live with excuses. When everybody that is in my circle of influence is doing the same thing I am, boy, I would, but... Well, you know, you gotta, you know, you got you to take care of the family. Well, you know, Jesus wants us to work and provide for our... We've got to put food on the table. And when you are in a circle of people who talk like that and think like that all the time, it becomes very easy to hide in that and to feel excused. And it is easy to be a good Christian. It is always easy to be a good Christian. The truth is, anybody can do it. Even non-believers. I've known some non-believers who are finer Christians than Christians in church. Have you? But I made a statement to my pastor this morning, Preacher Waylon. He always sends a text every morning offering prayer for, for others, other preachers and friends. And I replied to it this morning, shared with him what I would be preaching. And I said, I, I don't want to say this to be negative or, or judgmental. I said, but it's a, it's, a, it's a reality that makes me sad. That as I study and think on this and pray over this, I realize how few disciples I have actually known in my life. My world has been filled with Christians, but very few disciples. What are these excuses that they offer? Well, verse 18, the first said, I bought a piece of ground and I must not needs go see it. I, I would tell you that his excuse is I have property. I have things. I have responsibility. I have stuff that I must care for. I would... But, I've got things to do. I've got property to care for. What was the second? Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. What was his excuse? I have industry. I have a career. I have work to do. I would come. I would surrender. I would give my all for you, Jesus. But, I have a job. I have a career. I've got to work. 
I know what you said about he feeds the birds and dresses the fields. I, I got all that. That's beautiful poetry. I got it. But I've got to work. Just making excuses. And what was the last one? And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. And the excuse there is I have family. I, I would love to. I, I would come, but... I've got to take care of my wife. I've got to be there for my family. Athena and I were talking last week. I don't even know what brought it on, but one of the richest truths that I have been learning over the last several years is that we can and must be willing to let go of everything and everyone and I'm getting a little ahead of what Jesus is going to show us. But to understand, we were talking specifically about us being married. And in eternity, people cling to the hope that they will see their loved one again. I'll be with him or her again. And we'll be together throughout eternity. And I want you to understand that your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, they are not your all in all. And when you are with God, He will be your all in all. And everything that my wife is to me today and that I am to her or that we try to be for each other, it is nothing but a reminder. It is nothing but a timely uh, fill-in until we are with God and He satisfies everything that our hearts have need of. And so these relationships that we put above God, these identities that we hold as more vital to our lives than our identity in Jesus, all of it will be gone one day. It won't matter. Do not make an idol of these things now, though it's easy to do. All of these excuses center around making a life for ourselves here and now. And they're more about building our own little kingdom. And that is the limit of most Christian commitment. I will do and go and serve so long as it doesn't require me to let go of these things. My property, my industry, my family. As long as I can keep those things, I'll go with Him, with Him, almost all the way. And the third thing that we're shown here in the introduction of this teaching by Jesus is he shows us who are the true disciples. Who are the true disciples? In verse 20, another said, I've, uh, verse 21, so that servant came and said, I've told them all and none of them can come. And, and he says, go and compel those from the streets and the lanes, bring the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind and fill up my house. The ones who actually make it in will be those who have discovered themselves to be without any hope in any earthly kingdom. Think of the ones that, that, that they compelled that did come. Who did come? The poor, the maimed, the crippled, the blind. They came. Why? They had no property, no industry, no family to hold them back. You say, well, they were desperate. Yes, they were desperate, and we are not. And that's why we're content to be good Christians and not disciples. Until we see ourselves as we really are. 
that ever how many digits are in your salary or titles that you may hold or cars or boats that you may play with until we come to the place where it is not my house, not my job, not my car, not my boat, not my children, not my marriage, but it is all God. Until we come to that, we will not get in. The only ones who got in were those who had given up any hope of an earthly kingdom. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. They have no identity, no ambitions in this life. Their hearts are set on survival, and they find the one door. They find the one way, the one truth, the one life, the one shepherd who can offer them hope and life. These are the ones who have set all their faith and hope in the promises of God and they cling to nothing in this life because they have nothing in this life other than God. Now if it sounds heavy to this point, just hold on. Because we haven't even heard what Jesus says is required yet. This was the problem of the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. Verse 15 through 17, I know thy works, Jesus said, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot, so that because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Picture, if you will, the Laodicean church. They're good Christian people. They meet regularly and they fill the ranks and the pews and whatever they had back then. And they are a people who are meeting and having church and they're having a great time and their coffers are full of wealth, money. They've got it together and yet, verse 21 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Can you imagine a church who is content to have church while Jesus is on the outside of the church knocking? Because that's who they were. And this is who we become when we have any hope set in anything other than God alone. Who are the true disciples? So what then is the cost of true discipleship? How do we become true disciples? Verse 25, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. Jesus turns to the crowd, as he often does, and he knows the crowd is going to get thinner, as it usually does, when he tells them the hard and uncomfortable truth. There are three things he tells them and tells us about true discipleship and its cost. And I want you to notice this statement. Verse 26, he says, and any, If any man come, at, come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, notice the phrase, he cannot be my disciple. Three times he will say this. Non-negotiable. There's no part-time disciple. There's no weekend disciples. You're either a disciple or you're not. And there is only this way to be a true disciple. What is it? 
The first thing he says is that discipleship requires a concentrated love of Jesus. I read verse 26. Look at it again. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we don't need to try to explain this or water this down or make it more palatable. Jesus said exactly what he meant here. No mincing of words. Men have fumbled and bumbled and struggled to try to make that sound a little easier to take. Jesus didn't intend for it to be easy to take. He was serious. If you want to be my disciple, that is, one who is with me and learning from me how to become like me, then you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, even your closest family, those in your household. He didn't say your cousins and your ornery uncle. He named the very people that would have lived inside the house in that day. And compared to your commitment, your love to me, it would be as if you hate them. Now, we know we're not to hate anybody. We're to even love our enemies. I don't need to explain that to you. But what he asks of us, what he demands of a disciple is a love so undiluted by anything or anyone else that it would seem that we're willing to walk away from everything and everyone else. And if you'll be his disciple, you must be. Are you willing to let them go? You will not stand before your wife, your children, or your parents on the day of judgment. You will stand before him. And he will not look at you and say, you were a good husband, you were a good wife, you were a good parent, welcome in. He will say, you loved me and you obeyed me and you followed me above all else. It's hard. Yes. Is he asking of us more than we can give? I can't answer for you. But he is telling us what is required and it is non-negotiable. Many people are good Christians because being a Christian has not asked them to give up their family, to disappoint their family, or to choose between following Jesus and keeping their wife or their children or their parents happy. And so we can be good Christians. To be a disciple of Jesus requires a concentrated love. A love which is brought to bear on Him alone. But know this. If we choose to love Jesus like this, we will find that our love of others will actually become more pure and more true. You see, much of our love we offer is a selfish desire to please so that we will be liked and received. We call it love, but it's actually not selfless, it's selfish. But when we give everything up for Jesus, we learn more and more as we go along the way, true selfless love. What is the second thing that is required? 
Discipleship requires a concentrated love of Jesus. But secondly, discipleship requires you to carry your cross and follow Jesus. Verse 27 says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I wonder how many sit in churches week after week and don't even know what this means. How can we take up our cross and follow Jesus when we don't even understand what he is saying, what he's asking, what he's demanding? Christians, Christians tend to focus on Jesus' cross. Why? Because we have for so long had a gospel centered around the forgiveness of sin. And we celebrate Jesus' cross because we say, I'm forgiven. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Well, I would ask you, what is the way to heaven? What is the way to heaven? If we're not following Jesus, we are not on our way to heaven. If we are not following Jesus, we are not on our way to heaven. Christians focus on Jesus' cross. Disciples focus on their cross. These aren't my words, these are Jesus' words. Disciples will focus on their cross as they follow Jesus. That is vastly different. This is not a gospel of the forgiveness of sins alone. This is a gospel of true salvation not of a singular event in some past history, but of a lifetime process of being renewed by the grace of God as I walk in the way of the cross. That's discipleship. My cross, like the cross of Jesus, is an instrument of death. The cross is anything, any place, any circumstance in my life that God brings or allows in which my self-will is put to death. My self-glory is put to death. My self-ambition is put to death. My self-pleasing is executed on a daily basis. Christians don't live that way. Christians don't live that way. Christians live always to be comfortable. Christians live to have the things that are available to them. Christians live to have the two cars in the garage and the nice home and the retirement. And Christians live to have a good life. Disciples die daily. These are not the same. Why does it matter? Because unless we follow Jesus, we are not on our way to heaven. And he said, you cannot follow me unless you take up your cross. You can't live off Jesus' cross. That was his cross. You must bear your cross. You know, you can actually be a pretty good Christian and please yourself. In fact, we live in the most ripened age of consumer Christianity ever. 
church buildings are regularly filled with people who come and partake as they choose, like a buffet restaurant. In that same analogy, we, we like the main course, but we can't wait to get to the dessert bar. What pleases me? What makes me feel okay? What makes me stay comfortable in my form of Christian life? No concentrated love for Jesus. No crucifixion of self. And then he brings it all together in this third, third statement, which is an analogy of builders and kings. From verse 28 through verse 33. I will not read it all, but I will just remind you that he says here that if you're going to build a tower, would you not count the cost to see if you have sufficient to finish? If you were going to go to war with 10,000, would you not make sure you have what you need to face someone who has 20,000? You would stop and you would consider and you would count the cost. Now, what he is telling us is that discipleship requires you to count the cost. And the cost is everything. Everything. What does it cost to be a disciple of Jesus? Everything. And before you let your mind begin to explain that away or come up with another excuse as to what that means, it means everything. Nothing is excluded. How do I know that? Verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. This is not optional. It's not negotiable. As long as we have anything, we are not disciples of Jesus. As long as we are clinging to what we can do and what we have and what we like, we are not following Christ. The natural reaction to that would be, how can I give up everything I have? <laughs> Come on, preacher, how do you actually literally do that? How can I give up everything I own? What am I supposed to do? Jesus says to follow me means to give up everything you own. That part is non-negotiable. He wasn't using a flowery phrase. He meant what he said, so we have to understand there is an answer. And there's but one way to do this. There's but one way to, to, to let go of everything you own, and that is to turn it all over to him. And say, Lord, I have nothing. I am nothing. I desire nothing besides you. Nothing. I'm thinking of a man we met this week. Who about six years ago decided from reading scripture that God wanted him to go on a journey. And he left home with Nothing. And he ended up in Israel. And then you asked him to explain his story. He said, well, the scriptures led me. The scriptures led me. He has slept wherever he could find a place to sleep. He has ate when people gave him food while he was journeying. He's worked odd jobs along the way. We told him he was the Malcolm Merriweather of, of Israel. Now, 
It may not be to that extreme level for any of us. But then I can't help but follow that up with who knows what it might have been for us had we been willing to give God everything. But what it is, is to say, Lord, I no longer have a plot of ground. Lord, I no longer have five yoke of oxen. Lord, I no longer have a wife. I have nothing but you. Nothing. Can we say that? Can we say that? Can we bow our hearts before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the maker of everything and say, I have nothing. I want nothing. I do nothing apart from you. And you know what happens when we do that? When we let go of it all. We actually lose nothing. I gave my family to God a long time ago. Every time one of our children were born in the hospital, the first chance we got to be alone in that room before they took the baby away to do different things, we bowed our head and we said, Lord, thank you for this child, but we give them to you. They are yours now. They're not ours. They are yours. I don't, I don't own them. I don't serve them. I don't live for them. I don't live for my wife. I don't do all things to please her. But I'll tell you, when you give it all to him, you will find that he keeps all things well. And if my house were to burn down, and every car I've got end up on blocks, I've lost nothing. If a thief breaks in and steals the things that are in my house, friend, I have no, I've lost nothing. Matter of fact, if they come to my door and say, we're going to take what you've got, I'm going to say, friend, let me save you the trouble. It ain't mine anyway. You say, preacher, you wouldn't do that. I sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, hope I would. I told somebody this week, when they come and say, we're taking this and we're taking that. You know, we're afraid that we're going to lose our rights. I told somebody this week, they were talking about Americans and shouldn't Americans stand up for their rights? Shouldn't we defend our freedom? And I said, what rights? I have no rights. What freedom? There's nothing that can be taken from me unless you can take what God has given me. My freedom is in Christ. My life is hid with Christ in God. You can't take that. You can have anything you want. Because if you can take it, it didn't matter anyway. Well, I want to close. i got to close. But you can't leave here today like you came in. You can't. How can anybody sitting in this service leave this place today the same way you came in? The only way that's possible is you don't have ears to hear. Oh, you might have two things sticking out the side of your head, but you're not hearing what the Spirit is saying to you. One thing I need to add to all of this, because I am going to be the first one to say it's hard. 
It's hard. We don't, we're not built this way. We're not, we're not raised this way. We're not cultured to this kind of life. We're cultured to being good Christians. And that's easy. I want to say none of this is possible apart from the grace of God. I can't do any of these things in my own strength. I don't have the merit required to do it. I am desperate. I'm a pretty broken, beat up guy on the inside. And I got to tell you, often my morning prayer time starts like this. Lord, I need you. I got to have you. I'm a mess without you. Oh, Lord, I don't know how anybody makes it without you. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they live. I don't know how they have any sanity. I don't know how they have any hope. It's all by grace. And so the good news is this. You can. You can. You can live this way. You can be a disciple. You can follow Jesus because His grace is sufficient. You can do it. Someone may be thinking something like this this morning. Well, either way, I'm, I'm saved. So maybe I'm not a good disciple, but I'm going to heaven. You know, I, I may not do it like the preacher says, but I'm, you know, I know I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I, I would like to just draw your attention before we pray. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 22, this story is told by Matthew. And he gives us a piece of the story that Luke doesn't. He says in verse 11 through 13, When the king came in to see the guests that were around the table, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment, and he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So before you settle in on your profession of faith, before you settle in on a well, I might not be doing all that, but I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I want you to understand something. You say, preacher, what are you trying to say? All I'm after is this. I want you to know how serious God is about this thing of being a disciple. If it makes you uncomfortable, I'm glad. If it makes you squirm a little bit on the inside, thank God. It should make all of us squirm least a little bit. Friends, don't forget where the story began in verse 24. None of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Don't forget that there were five virgins in Matthew 25 who didn't make it in because they had no oil. You may recall, and don't forget that Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But you may think, well, in the end, God is love and he will not refuse me. But I recall the words read in the opening today from Proverbs chapter 1. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have said it not all my counsel, and with none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind when distress and anguish cometh upon you then shall they call upon me but I will not answer they shall seek me early but they shall not find me for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord what do you choose today what will you choose today you can be comfortable in your Christianity or you can choose to become a disciple of Jesus Jesus 